ACNFers, if you're looking to get into shape to hold yourself accountable, you might hire a personal trainer. Likewise, if your writing needs a spotter, consider letting me help you out. If you're working on a book, an essay, a query, or a book proposal, and you're ready to level up, consider emailing me, brendan at brendanomero.com, and we'll start a dialogue. I'd be honored to help you get where you want to go. And start getting ready as I finish up reading the hero essays for issue three of the audio magazine. Still judging and curating them. Still got a few more to read. I've got a new call for submissions forthcoming on a really, really cool topic. I can't wait to share it with you. So that's coming soon. Stay tuned. Not in this episode, but stay tuned nevertheless. Yeah, it's pretty mind-bending to just think like, oh, at any point we could just flash melt the entire planet. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty scary. (laughs) But luckily it doesn't happen that often. (laughs) This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. This non-award-nominated podcast. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? I have a slew of space books on my shelf. Most are hefty, which would take me in the neighborhood of a month to read. I'm a slow reader, and I desperately want to read them, even if their pub dates aren't hot anymore. My term for when when, uh, authors are always looking to promote their work, like right around the time their pub date comes, and I get it, but sometimes it's nice to have a long tail. Am I right? Anyway. But one that is certainly more accessible and slim and funny and, dare I say, impactful is Greg Brennica's Impact, How Rocks and Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. Yeah. Sidebar. Uh, Shout out to to Kelsey, who's a a new Tier 3 patron. Love that. But back when I had Jess Phoenix on the show, a, a volcanologist, Kelsey messaged me and said he liked when we dove into the science of the volcanoes. So many of you know, of course, that this, we, we dig primarily into writing and the writer's life, whatever that is. But sometimes the material taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, buddy, let's, uh, why don't we go over here? And sure, yes, we do talk about some writing a bit in this episode, but the bulk of this is about meteorites in the cosmos. If you like the brilliant Allie Ward's Ologies podcast, which I highly recommend, this episode is sort of like that. Lots of meteorite talk and a little writing talk. This can happen when scientists and such come on the show versus writers who write about science. Does that make sense? I think it does. It makes sense to me, and that's all that matters in the end. I want to remind you to keep the conversation going on Twitter at CNFPod or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid member at patreon.com slash cnfpod. As I say, this show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Members get transcripts, chances to ask questions of future guests, special podcasts, early access to the audio magazine before it goes public, free ways to support the show. I know what it's like to not have, be able to kind of fork over even a few bucks to your favorite podcaster. I get it. So that, But there are plenty of free ways to do it, and the best way is leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify doesn't do reviews, but do ratings, but Apple, the written reviews on Apple are huge. Written reviews for this little podcast that could go a long way towards validating it 
for the wayward CNFer. At one point or another, I bet you were a wayward CNFer and you stumbled upon our little podcast and you're like, ooh, check that out. And you might have even been swayed or persuaded by the written reviews you might have seen in Apple Podcasts. But I'll give this shit a try, right? Anyway, consider it. And if you, if you publish it, when it posts, I will read it on the air and give you mad props, the maddest of props. So Greg Brennica is a PhD, meteoroticist, meteorot. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like the, I can't not say that word without like eroticism coming out. So it's a uh, meteoriticist. I think that's it. Meteoritics, meteoriticist. <laughs> Erotica, meteor, meteor erotica. <laughs> uh, staff scientist and a cosmo chemist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He's never going to come back on this show. Following his doctoral work at Arizona State University, he received the prestigious Sophia Something Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation in 2014 to study the early solar system at the Institute of Planet Planetology in Munster, Germany, where he led the solar system forensics group for five years. His research has appeared in Science, Nature, and Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Now that sounds fancy. He says he's bad at the internet, God bless him. But if you want to find him on Twitter, he's at Greg Brennica with two N's. The extra N is for Neowise. We talk about the formation of our moon. So the famous Kurt Vonnegut line was, go take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. Go take a flying fuck at the moon. It wouldn't be in existence were it not for a cosmic rock the size of Mars smashing into Earth with the beautiful name Thea. We get into how meteorites shaped our culture. How much of a meteorite does Greg need in hand to conduct research he needs to do? And a whole lot more. So what do you say we welcome the Carl Sagan of meteorites, Greg Brennica? <laughs> Give me a, a sense of what that moment was like when you started to look up at the stars, but it was meteorites that started to seize your attention. <laughs> well, actually, it kind of went the other way. I was looking at the ground. Uh, I was a, kind of a traditional geologist and then learned about meteorites and then uh, started getting into space that way. So it was kind of the opposite of what most people do, I think. Uh, you know, a lot of people start with the teles or a, you know, a telescope as a kid or something and, and, and go that direction. But I was just, you know, a kid looking at rocks in the, in nature and then decided, you know what, some of these rocks came from space and I'm pretty interested in those. Yeah. And what was it about, uh, geology and the stories that rocks in and of themselves can tell that appeal to you? I think it's just kind of the cool idea of figuring out what happened. I mean, that's what geologists are, are traditionally always doing is they look at an outcrop or they look at uh, a rock uh, in some way and then just kind of figure out what the environment was like, you know, what was going on at that time when that rock was formed and what has happened since then. And, you know, that's, you know, just kind of looking back in time like a forensics expert or something. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what geologists are always doing. And, you know, it was space rocks in the same way uh, for the most part. Yeah, what did you find most most appealing about that to start to study it with a lot of rigor and attention? 
that's a great question. I would say probably the variety that uh, meteorites bring to the table is is probably what I found to be most stimulating. I mean, if you know, there's a lot of people out there that study volcanoes and they're super cool. Uh, you know, or study sedimentary rocks and, and look at the history of the ocean on the planet. Um, but if you're looking at meteorites, you're kind of looking at everything. You're looking at, you know, the history of Mars. You're looking at the history of the moon, how the moon formed. You're looking at, at you know, how the solar system formed itself. You know, what was going on in the first 10 million years, uh, you know, kind of as planets were starting to form. So I found the variety to be really stimulating uh, from a scientific standpoint. Now, as you're getting into this, I'm sure that, you know, for astrophysicists that might be looking to Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson for inspiration of like, oh, that's what I, you know, that's really cool. I love how they communicate it. I want to get into that. Uh, for you, who were some of the people that you pointed to that inspired you to go down this particular scientific path? Um, I would say actually more authors than, than anything, as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, kind of scientists. Uh, I, I read Bill Bryson fairly late in life. Actually, I was, I was working in a lab doing some, just, you know, watching some column strip as I was starting to, you know, get into my graduate education. And I was reading a short hif history of nearly everything by Bill Bryson. And I just loved it. Uh, I loved his communication style. I loved the interesting topics he was talking about. Uh, and I loved how he brought enthusiasm to his writing and, and kind of taught you about something you didn't know or, or you didn't think you needed to know about. So I got into that and really enjoyed that. And then, of course, uh, I stumbled my way into the studying meteorites. And that's kind of how the book came along as I thought, you know what, somebody should combine these two things. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Like when you were reading that, he he might have in, in I've read a bunch of Bryson. I have not read that book. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, hefty one, but it's one that comes highly recommended. Um, but I think he, he he sort of breezed past meteorites or just gave it a superficial uh, a superficial pass. And you're like, oh, there maybe that's your that's my daylight to go in and maybe get real granular on on meteorites. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I went back and reread Bryson after I kind of thought of this idea, uh, you know, two or three years ago about writing this book. And I thought, OK, maybe he covered it and I just missed it. And really, all that was in there was was kind of that, uh, you know, meteorites are something that fall from the sky and they killed the dinosaurs. And, you know, that's that's fine. You know, that's kind of what maybe the general public knows and thinks about meteorites. But of course, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. And I think uh, I think that you're exactly right. That was the daylight to kind of break into that into that scene. We need to talk about. Uh, how the moon was formed and the the Mars sized uh, meteorite that was uh, named Theia, like that just blew my mind. And uh, let's let's just uh, I'll let you run with that football a bit because that is just an incredible uh, story of how the moon was formed. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I mean, and just not just the influence of of that happening with the moon, but also how it changed Earth. And you know, I guess the the play by play of it goes is that you know early on in in solar system history, the Earth had formed, and and pretty much all the planets had basically formed by this time. We're a couple hundred million years into the solar system, so most of the big big things had already formed, but they weren't really stable. You know, the 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 planets were still kind of figuring out their right orbits and things like this. And there was a lot of impacts that were happening at the time. And uh, as you mentioned, the early Earth and Theia, which is, uh, you know, the Mars-sized body that hit Earth, uh, basically, you know, ran into each other. And, and of course, that flash melted the entire planet of Earth uh, and caused this rock vapor to form uh, around Earth. And that's actually what the moon formed from, is this kind of rock vapor 
Uh, and, and that's actually how, how we end up having a, such a large satellite next to us. And, you know, the implications of that were, were mind blowing. You know, they, you know, a lot of people would say that we would be on a similar trajectory to Venus and have this horribly crushing atmosphere of 96% CO2, just totally unlivable if it weren't for that kind of resetting of the atmosphere and, and blowing off that early, early atmosphere of earth with that uh, large impact. So, you know, there's a lot of things to point to of how important that was for the evolution of the planet and life. Um, but, but it's pretty, pretty big impact, uh, you know, in both senses of the word, I guess. Well, yeah, what was uh, amazing about it to read was that it, it really, it just kind of wiped out the mainframe and sort of hit the reset button on everything. It's just like, you know, we're just gonna, like you said, like just basically surface melted the entire surface of the earth and had to basically reboot the whole process over again. It's, it's just a, an amazing thing and overwhelming really to even think about. When I, when I was trying to get my head around it. Yeah, it's pretty mind-bending to just think like, oh, at any point we could just flash melt the entire planet. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scary. <laughs> but luckily it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> yeah, and with the, the you know, the, that rock dust and cloud that eventually sort of accrete to form the moon, like how does that even happen where those things come together and merge in such a way where you do get a, a, a solid celestial body? Well, it's all, you know, just kind of chemistry and gravity. Um, and, and the gravity of a molten earth is going to be the same as the gravity of a solid earth. So, you know, all of those things are still kind of in orbit around the earth after they get knocked off. And, the, you know, the, the chunks of the meteorite Theia uh, basically are still, you know, floating around. Uh, so, you know, all those things that are, uh, you know, kind of blown off and, and blown off into that, that vapor are still gravitationally connected to the earth. Uh, and then, of course, over time, uh, they end up coalescing and, and forming the moon. And of course, you've got a lot of heat still going on in that system. So that's why when they form, it's it's molten, you know, so you get you get a lot of, of heat. And so you end up, you know, kind of melting also the moon. And that's why we have a lot of volcanic, volcanic activity on the moon that happened early on, too. Mm. So it's just all it's all, you know, gravity and, and chemistry, I guess I would say. Huh. Yeah. And you also you write that rocks from outer space not only create stories, but they tell them also. So in, in what ways are these rocks from space carrying these encrypted messages and how do you go about decoding them? Yeah. And this is what I got super excited about when I was in graduate school, just kind of learning about this is that what all the stuff that you can learn from a rock that just fell, you know, from space. And, you know, when I, I say they tell stories as well, I mean, we would have no idea really how the uh, solar system formed and its early evolution if it weren't from meteorites. And, and they contain these clues as to what was going on at that time. I mean, you know, you look at some of the, the very ancient primitive meteorites and, and they contain, you know, kind of the very first solids that formed at the beginning of the sun. And, and we can see kind of what was going on with the conditions of the sun and what material was, was being injected into our protoplanetary disk from the molecular cloud. You know, you can see how much water was present. You can see how much uh, of, of different radioactive species were present. You know, you can look at different signatures of how active the young sun was. So, you know, early on, the sun was, you know, very temperamental, I like to say, and, and, and had a lot more activity than it does now. Um, and, and we can measure those kind of things as they're recorded in these in these early form solids. Uh, so I think it's just, you know, the stories that they tell are kind of the conditions that were present early in that protoplanetary disk as as the uh, planets and, and sun were forming. And then, of course, you know, sometimes we get we're lucky enough to get plants uh, or pieces of planet Mars or, or the moon that also tell us about the evolution of those bodies as well. 
you know, you have you have a chunk knocked off of Mars, uh, you know, that tells you about a snapshot in time on what the crust of Mars was happening, you know, 2 billion years ago, or, or 600 million years ago, or, or 4 billion years ago. So, you know, you layer these things together, you also get a, a pretty good snapshot of, of a bunch of different time frames that tell you the, the history of Mars as well. So it just they're really beneficial to us as a society from a scientific standpoint. And when, uh, when, a, when there's a, a meteorite uh, fall and a find, which you define nicely in there, it's just like, you know, it's falling in the air. And then when it's on the ground, it's, it becomes a find. Um, they're essentially kind of like a, a clock starts ticking, so to speak, before they become sort of contaminated by everything that's sort of in the air or on the ground. So about how fast should... Uh, or how much time does uh, does a researcher or a scavenger have to uh, to find these things before you start losing the information that's encoded in them? Well, I mean, the, obviously, the faster the better. Um, and you know, if they fall in a place, uh, a lot of a lot of meteorites are found in deserts um, simply because they're easier to see, and because of the lack of rainfall, then they last a lot longer. So there's been very useful samples that have been found that have been laying in deserts for for probably hundreds to thousands of years. Uh, there's certainly meteorites that have been found in Antarctica that, uh, you know, have kind of been trapped in ice and then, and then you know, kind of resurfaced. Uh, they're still very, very useful and contain a lot of very pristine information. But also at the same time, we've got meteorites that have fallen in, you know, the, you know, jungles of Indonesia that people saw fall, collected, and basically, you know, maybe 50 years later, they're basically completely destroyed uh, because, uh, you know, they've just been they've been weathered so heavily, uh, and and they're almost useless uh, from a scientific standpoint. So a lot of it just depends on how much weathering they see and what types of environments they see. But uh, yeah, the sooner the better, I guess, is, is the easy way to say that. <laughs> right? Yeah, I like that you write too. That uh, uh, yeah, meteor uh, is it meteoritics? Is that the how you pronounce the field? <laughs> yeah, meteoritics. Me- well, let's okay, go yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> we just, just a made up word anyway. Who knows? <laughs> But it sits at the crossroad between uh, very broad disciplines, uh, including astronomy, chemistry, and geology. So, like, in what ways do the does the the meteoritics uh, um, sort of embody the the Venn diagram of all these uh, all these great disciplines of, of science? Right. Well, a lot of it, you know, geologists are especially, uh, you know, normally the ones that are becoming meteoriticists because of the same tools that we use in geology, we end up using in meteoritics. Uh, things like mass spectrometers and petrographic microscopes and, and these types that are normally things that geologists train on and then you kind of get hooked on meteorites. Um, so that's, you know, kind of the, the main stepping stone for for geologists. But then, of course, in order to figure out what's going on, we have to be able to talk to astronomers you know, how would this form, you know, why would it have this type of signature? Why is this, you know, you know, this important and these types of things. So then we end up delving into, you know, astronomical literature and, and people that do those types of things, you know, and then of course, you know, chemistry in general uh, is, is always happening in rocks and it happens, you know, whether you're in zero gravity or under the you know bottom of the ocean. So we just have to know what types of environments to, to kind of understand and predict the chemistry that's happening. Is there a particular meteorite you can point to, a one that really like opened up the eyes and maybe even opened up the possibilities of, uh, you know, the origins of the universe, sort of like a, a meteorite patient zero? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so actually, I'll just go ahead and say one year. There's two meteorites that fell in the same year that I think would, would answer that question. So 
1969, there were two meteorites that fell. One was Allende and one was Murchison. One of them fell in Mexico. Allende fell in Mexico and Murchison fell in Australia. And it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of happy coincidences that happened at that point. Of course, in 1969, everybody's super excited about going to the moon. We've got a bunch of clean labs that are being built and learning how to make these measurements. And there's new instrumentation coming online to allow us to study moon rocks. And so there's a, a large scientific community that's interested in space and they're ready to kind of get these rocks and, and make these measurements. Uh, and then these two really important meteorites fall. And they're both very uh, pristine. They haven't been you know, weathered a lot, they were seen to fall and large amounts were collected. Uh, so that's also key is that they could be kind of spread around the world to a lot of different labs and there was a lot of material to use. And it turned out when you start looking at these things, you start seeing, you know, signatures of the very, very early solar system because they were such pristine objects. Um, you know, they were never melted ever. Um, so you think about, you know, something that's four and a half billion years old, and it's basically recording exactly what happened when it formed. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these two meteorites, uh, one of them, you know, contains some of the oldest uh, solids that formed. And that's what I've spent most of my time studying is looking at the very, <clears throat> excuse me, the very early solids that formed. And then Murchison, the other meteorite contains those as well, but they're really small. But the most important thing Murchison contains is a lot of organic material. And this, this is something that, that happens to form in the outer solar system where Murchison formed. And you end up kind of capturing this in meteorites uh, because they form basically as a sedimentary rock only in, in space. So you end up with all this kind of organic matter that gets trapped in this meteorite and then it was delivered to the planet. And it's just really fascinating when you look at these things. When looking into outer space with, via, you know, teles with telescopes and whatnot, uh, what are, how, how are scientists able to determine if if a particular asteroid or a meteorite actually is organic rich, as uh, I think is something I read in the book. Is, is there a way to tell, or am I just totally making that up and you need to actually measure it in at home? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. You can, you can say where you think it probably has a lot of organics, and this is kind of being put into practice right now. Uh, there's two space missions that are basically going up to collect asteroidal material. Uh, Hayabusa 2 was the Japanese mission that is, uh, has already returned, and they're starting to get some results back now. And then OSIRIS-REx is the NASA version of that. And both of these basically went to these carbon-rich asteroids. They have a lot of carbonaceous material. They have a lot of organic material in them. Uh, and the reason they were able to, to figure out that is you basically you point an instrument up there and kind of look at the spectral lines, and you can kind of mm -hmm. get a broad idea of what what elements and what compounds are contained on the surface of that meteorite. So that's actually why they went to those meteorites is because they looked like they would contain a lot of organic materials and, and kind of this pristine, pristine stuff that, that formed in the very early solar system. Yeah. And what is the, the nature of those organic minerals or well, organic compounds or molecules that are typically out there? Well, they're, you know, they, they range a lot. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty easy to think, okay, well, yeah, there's, there's definitely going to be some water. There's going to be some, you know, CO2 and, and very basic compounds like that. That makes total sense. But these things actually form pretty complex organic molecules. And, you know, when I say organic molecules, I don't mean necessarily, uh, you know, something from a living being, but something that contains carbon. And you can end up with a lot of carbon chains uh, to the point of where we're seeing amino acids all the way up, you know, to, to very complicated things like, you know, nucleotide bases that are found in our DNA. 
And these just kind of form, you know, by the combination of the elements being present and UV radiation. And, you know, these just happen, you know, just, just by chance in the outer solar system of, of really of any star system where you've got water and carbon and, you know, nitrogen and other elements that make up amino acids and, and other, you know, kind of semi-complex uh, molecules. And they just kind of happen by, by chance. And, uh, and, you know, they, they survive in the cold areas of space and they're captured in meteorites. I think what's really, really wacky about chemistry is this, the idea of the chirality of a, of a molecule and how the handedness of it determines, it can be the difference between like methamphetamine versus something that's far more benign as you write about as well. It's a, as, as someone with a, uh, a chemistry background can maybe ex- explain this idea of chirality and and then how would they how how chemists even figured out that there are these mirror images of molecules that can act and behave totally differently from their mirror image it is pretty wild i mean uh you mentioned the the difference in methamphetamine and i think it's nasal g- decongestant which is kind of the other side uh you know so so back to the chirality issue is that if you have, you know, if you're looking at your hand uh, and you put your hands together, obviously your right and left hand, they look the same to you. You know, if you just took a picture, it may be difficult to see the difference between the right and the left hand uh, and you wouldn't know if it was a mirror image or not. But of course, you know, one is is easier to use for you than the other, uh, you know, for the most part. So they do have differences. Uh, the same is, is true for, for chemistry. Uh, it may be the exact same molecule from a chemical standpoint. It may have the exact same chemical formula. But if it's arranged in different uh, orientation in a three dimensions, then it is going to behave differently. It's going to be have, have different bonding sites. And, and that's the idea behind chirality. And, you know, that's what makes methamphetamine methamphetamine. And that's what makes nasal de- decongestion nasal decongestion. Uh, and, and it is pretty, pretty crazy to think. And, and of course, you know, for certain compounds, life prefers one or the other and, and will build itself out of one side or the other. It, it doesn't really use both uh, in most cases. Uh, so that's uh, kind of the the really important part of the chirality is that one is functional, whereas one is usually not functional for most living beings. One of the greatest explanations of chirality was actually, I believe it was the pilot of uh, the show Breaking Bad, where, you know, Walt is the, you know, the high school chemistry teacher and he's he's holding up his hands and he's talking about the chirality of the molecules. And, uh, and it was just such a perfect embodiment of of him because if he looked in a mirror one way like he you know he was going to be this well as they said he turned him from mr chips into scarface was the the famous pitch and it's so the in embodied in this uh i don't know this hull of a person was really a, a mirror image that's identical but is actually functioning completely different it, there was a handedness to his own personality which was a, a really brilliant way to illustrate it I totally agree. I mean, there's a lot of uh, chemistry fans out there that are that are uh, you know loving kind of the the character arc of <laughs> of, of him, and I think that's a good point. Uh, I think it's it's a great illustration. You're right. Now, is it true that did I re- I, I think I, I think I read this, and I'm hopefully I made the right note that uh, that that Mars at one point had an atmosphere that was similar to Earth. Mars's climate was definitely very different early on. So the atmosphere mm-hmm. is, is certainly debated. Uh, it's going to have a thicker atmosphere probably early on uh, in Martian history. And it was certainly a lot wetter. Um, so there's definitely evidence of, of liquid water that is, has existed on, on Mars in the past. 
Um, so, you know, kind of the first billion, maybe two billion years, uh, depending on how you slice it, uh, the Martian climate was very, very different from what it is now. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, now that we're up and then collecting samples that we hopefully are able to bring back soon enough, uh, at least during my career, that's what they're kind of shooting for is looking at these areas that have seen liquid water uh, in, in the hopes that we're able to find some evidence of past life or, or something uh, along those lines. But yeah, Mars, Mars definitely had a very different atmosphere early on. If you wanted to get a piece of some of the, the Mars booty coming back eventually, hopefully with it before the end of your career, like how, how would you go about petitioning and lobbying to be like, yeah, can I get a piece of that Mar- Martian rock? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that we're actually in the process, uh, all of, all of NASA and, and kind of the participating scientists around the world are doing that for the missions that have just brought back material for, uh, you know, OSIRIS-REx and, and Hayabusa 2 that I mentioned earlier from these carbon-rich asteroids. So this is, this is exactly the, the same process that will happen for Mars when we eventually bring back samples for that. You know, so they're, you know, basically you, you write proposals, uh, say what you can do, what you plan to do, um, you know, how it's a good use of material, uh, these types of things. Uh, and then, you know, kind of various panels, uh, you know, much like peer review, will review these uh, proposals and, and decide who gets samples and, and who has to wait. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very exciting and, and, and uh, you know, cool thing to do. It can be a bit frustrating sometimes. But yeah, in order to get these samples, uh, you know, you have to kind of show that you're worthy and, and have a good plan going forward. And, you know, we do this at smaller levels for, for the use of Apollo samples or meteorites that are collected by NASA. So, you know, we have, we have uh, these types of things in place. Uh, it's just that the stakes are a little bit higher when you're bringing back samples from a space mission like, uh, you know, OSIRIS-REx or something like that. Now, how much mass of a particular asteroid or uh, meteorite would, uh, would, be enough for you to, you know, to play with and do some research with, uh, for, I don't know, an indefinite amount of time? Like how much would you need in hand? Yeah. So it, it, that's a great question. And, uh, it's actually not that much. So it's actually often quite easy to get enough sample to use. So for the stuff that I generally do, uh, you know, a lot of chronology and, and looking at kind of where things form in the solar system, if we get a gram of, of, of material, that's usually enough to do this type of stuff that we need to do. Uh, some, some studies, we need a little bit more than that. So we may be talking about five grams or something like this. But that's not a lot of material if you, if you think about it. You know, something the size of my thumb and I could, you know, work on that for a long, long time. Uh, you know, so, so it's actually not that much material. Uh, you know, if you get a half gram, then you're kind of starting to push the limits of, of doing everything that I would want to do to the sample. Um, but of course, we layer these things. You, you start off with the non-destructive analysis, and then you move more and more destructive to the point where you end up having to dissolve the entire sample. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, if you if, if I've got somewhere near a gram or, or the people that do the type of stuff that I do, if we've got a gram or so, then we're in good shape. Now, you mentioned that you're, you know, you're looking to form a, a chronology of sorts about, I, I imagine, just dating back to, you know, the formation of the of the universe back to the big big bang one one imagines uh so in your in your research you know where are the gaps in the chronology that you're hoping to patch up so a lot of it uh so we for, so for meteorites we're dealing with uh just the solar system so mm-hmm. we're kind of restricted to this you know kind of 4.56 uh you know billion year time frame and and what i would say the most interesting to me 
is kind of that first 10 billion years. Um, we're, we're just getting to the point now where we have the precision to kind of see the differences in what was happening maybe a million years after the sun formed and the planet started to form and two million years after that happened. And there's, you know, I like to think of all the exciting stuff in the solar system really was happening at that point. And, and, and the chronometers that we use, uh, we're now starting to be able to see those on, you know, a hundred year, excuse me, a hundred thousand year time frame as opposed to a million or two million years. And, you know, we think about building a planet uh, and, and, and planetary bodies, you know, you'd think, oh, okay, it's huge. It's going to take forever. But in reality, this actually happens really, really fast on a geologic timescale. I mean, we can you can form planets uh, in, incredibly fast in, you know, the 100,000-year 100, time frame uh, to form an entire planet. So we need these chronometers to, to be quite precise in order to see you know, which planets formed first, how they evolved, when they, you know, melted, when they, you know, kind of formed a crust or a core and things like this. So uh, I guess that's why kind of we do what we do is to, to kind of figure out how these, these planets form and evolve. Now, uh, earlier you are mentioning how, you know, the Mars's atmosphere was significantly different and, uh, you know, wetter, obviously. Uh, you know, what what has to happen or what can... Uh, we've seen it was something like Theia that can totally reset a planet. But what what do you suppose happened on Mars that made it uninhabitable and totally changed its uh, its dynamic? Part of the problem with Mars is it's it's actually a little bit small to be able to keep everything you would want uh, to keep a habitable planet going. So it's it's a little bit smaller than Earth. Uh, I, I would mess up the exact dimensions, but we'll just say sixty percent smaller. Um, and I'm somebody will check me on that, and I'll be wrong, I'm sure. But it's it's smaller than <laughs> Earth. And uh, because it's a little bit smaller, it loses a little bit more of the stuff, you know, over time. So you end up having escape of things like water from uh, it's, you know, Mars's gravitational pull because it simply just can't hold on to things as well. So, you know, if for, for people that look at kind of habitability of, of planets outside of our own solar system, that becomes very important uh, to be able to hold on to those goodies, you know, the things that you would want as a habitable planet for a long period of time to allow evolution to take place and develop intelligent beings, you know, you would need, you would need a long period of time to do that. And you would need a certain mass of a planet. Um, so that's, you know, one of the bigger problems with Mars, you know, kind of sustaining a long habitability is that it's actually a little bit smaller than maybe you would need to be. Mm. Yeah. Cause that, um, yeah, that got me thinking about, okay, so, you know, meteorites often contain these chemicals that can help uh, and you know molecules that allow for potentially life to take to take root you know, or there are some sort of introductory materials in in the starter kit uh of uh of maybe terraforming a planet so I was thinking like if if people want to eventually inhabit or try to colonize Mars like is there a way to terraform it, it you taking the concept of what meteorites deliver haphazardly but do it more concentrated with like oh here are some man-made terraforming meteorites that we just like bombard a planet with <laughs> and terraform it. Is it like... <laughs> I like, I like how science fiction this has turned. This is great. <laughs> this is like, you know, Prometheus or one of these, uh, you know, right. One of these movies is great. I, we would need a lot of material. I mean, we, we've definitely found <laughs> meteorites on the surface of Mars, which I think is really cool with uh, spirit and opportunity rovers that were kind of driving around and they just kind of stumble across a few iron meteorites, which I think is, which is really cool to think about. Oh, meteorites exist on other planets too. That's, you know, here's the proof. But as far as, you know, the, the actual ingredients that exist, you know, I think, I think part of the problem is that with, with Mars, for example, if, if it's been kind of sitting out and exposed, uh, then those complex organic molecules would have broken down due to 
all the radiation that, that's taking place. So you're first going to have to kind of create some sort of atmosphere, you know, a la Arnold Schwarzenegger in, uh, in, in Total Recall, uh, you know, cre- create this type of atmosphere probably first uh, that can then kind of allow these uh, organic molecules, these complex organic molecules to, to actually survive in the, in the radiation conditions there. Mm. Um, but this, you know, that's going to be way beyond my actual comfort zone of, of <laughs> right. talking. So I'm just totally making stuff up right now. Yeah. You want to maintain a certain measure of credibility in yeah. your career. And I understand that <laughs> I, I do not want to be the one who discredits one, uh, Greg, Greg Brennica in his PhD career in cosmochemistry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, does the, does the axis of the earth and how it's tilted, does that affect you know, where we tend to find most of the meteorites that do land on Earth? So meteorites actually hit Earth pretty randomly wherever you are. They, you know, they're going to hit the same in China as they hit in, you know, in uh, Norway. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just random. They're coming from all directions. You're spinning. It's, you know, that's, that's not really uh, too much of a, of a, a difference as to where they land. Uh, the, the major issue is where we find them, of course. You know, there's... They're, kind of spraying us all over, all over the place all the time. Most of them, of course, land in the ocean because we have 70% ocean, but they're easier to find when you don't have vegetation and you've got, you know, white rock or ice or something like that, where it's just easy to, to pick them out as something that's very different. So, you know, there's, it's like I said, it's random, uh, but it's not random where we find them, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and what was uh, pretty uh, pretty cool about your book too is how, how these uh, meteorites have played an important role, uh, as you write, influencing human culture and religious teachings over time. And you say, like, and that to me is a story worth telling. So maybe you can, like, just expand on just what these cosmic bodies um, and how they, well, how they affected uh, just, uh, you know, human culture and how it's interpreted and how humans over time reacted to these things falling to Earth. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, whether you're a religious person or not, you know, a lot of people are aware of a lot of these religious stories or, or things that are happening in, in some of the world's major religions. And, you know, as, as you look into these things, it's, it's pretty interesting to me how many of them are actually caused by cosmic influence. And I guess that's not too much of a stretch if you're, you know, living four or 5,000 years ago and, you know, just kind of doing your thing and a major cosmic events hap- event happens, whether it be a comet uh, or, you know, a meteorite fall or an airburst or something like this that totally disrupts uh, your day or night or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, you may think that's something, you know, related to the heavens or God or, or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's that's not too much of a stretch. And, uh, you know, this has certainly happened for for basically every major religion. And, you know, you know, I could just pick a few out of out of uh, Christianity. You know, you look at like uh, the Star of Bethlehem was a comet. So that's something that a lot of people have heard of. But but it was actually a, a comet that was passing at the time. Uh, you know, things like uh, the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was you know, as the story goes, these these cities were destroyed by God because they were, you know, doing something uh, amoral or, or something like this. Um, but that was probably a meteoritic airburst. And, and you know, there's layers and layers of these stories that go on. Uh, you know, in, in Islam, you, you talk about, you know, the, the literal cornerstone of the most important place in Islam where they face to pray. And that's actually some material that was probably kicked up by a meteorite. 
Um, so, you know, I think, I just think it's really interesting how many of these things have actually, you know, created these inflection points in some of the most, uh, followed religions on the planet. Now, uh, a couple years ago, the, the comet Neowise was up and, uh, we were able to, you know, see it from where we were on a, on a clear night here in, uh, Western Oregon. And it was just like such a, what a trip to see something like that, you know, just, I don't know, just up there, just kind of hanging in the sky. And then, you know, the next day it's, you know, it's moving, of course. You know, it's just, a, it does inspire at a tremendous degree of awe. And I wonder for you, like where you're, you know, where the juice is for you. Like you're looking at, you're looking at these kind of things and the things that make you just excited to do the thing you do. Yeah, all those things. I mean, it it is kind of awe-inspiring, but also, you know, it really puts things in perspective, in my opinion, is that we're just a really insignificant rock, uh, you know, when it comes to the the cosmos in general. I mean, you look at this this comet, you know, that's passing by, like you were talking about, and, you know, that thing's been circling the sun for probably four and a half billion years or more, you know. Uh, It formed basically at the same time the sun formed, and it's been doing its thing since then. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of time, you know, we talk about, oh, I've been here for, you know, 41 years or whatever. Um, you know, we're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, many, many orders of magnitude difference and, and we're one rock that has life on it. And, and, you know, I don't think there's any reason to believe that life hasn't popped up in quite a few different places, uh, you know, around the cosmos. Um, so when people get upset about, you know, something on earth that, you know, maybe seem important to them at the time, I, to me, it's just like, oh, well, we're all kind of insignificant, which is depressing at some level, but it also kind of puts things in perspective a little yeah. bit, uh, at least for me. <laughs> I know it, it can, you can, you can take it either way. It's like in either direction, like we are so insignificant that nothing matters. So why, why try, why do anything? Uh, but then there's the other side of it is just like, wow, what a lottery we won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every that's... one of us has, right? It's like you can take it either direction. No, you're absolutely right. And I guess, you know, finding that middle ground is, is key. You definitely don't want to just give up and say, oh, nothing I do matters because the sun's going to engulf us in a few billion years anyway. Why do I care? You know, that's that's kind of depressing. That's not a good way to go through life either. So, <laughs> <laughs> Now, in the acknowledgments, I, I love how you wrote that somehow without complaint, you uh, speaking uh, about the people who read early drafts of of your work. You like you read every mediocre first draft of every chapter, and it was uh, that gets to a point that so many of us have with early drafts when we're writing anything. Is that you know we have a vision of what this you know our perfect thing is going to look like in our head, and then we start writing, and then we're like, oh boy, this <laughs> this ain't this ain't pretty. This is one ugly baby. So uh, when you were in that process of uh, trying to care for this ugly baby, and despite its hideous appearance, it's, <laughs> how did, what was that experience like for you as you were you know, bringing this thing to life? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky because I had a few, uh, you know, people that were close to me to, to kind of read and give honest feedback. Uh, and that's, that's key. That was key for me. Uh, you know, I'd write a chapter and I had kind of the blueprints of it and then I'd kind of put it on paper and, you know, after a while I'd kind of finish what I would think would be a decent first draft and and kind of send it over and say, Hey, what do you think of this? And, you know, every time they would always give positive and negative feedback, uh, you know, but it was always constructive. And that was really important for me to see, okay, this was, this was great. This was something I learned a lot about. And I think it's really interesting. You should expand on this. This was really boring. Uh, you know, don't, don't talk about this. You know, I don't think anybody outside of your field cares about it. 
uh, or you're trying to be, you know, too humorous about this one. It's not even funny, uh, you know, or this is great, you know, continue on with this line of uh, this line of, of thinking. So, you know, for me, having that type of feedback uh, was was really nice, especially from people I liked and trusted, um, because I think without that, I would have really been shooting in the dark as to what kind of most people think of as what they wanted to read about. And, you know, of course, I, I knew what I was interested in, but that's not necessarily always the case of what everybody's interested in. So kind of taking, you know, four or five people's honest advice was really important for me. Yeah. And with anything, like you even alluded to it, like there are probably certain things about your area of expertise where you'll dive into the real granular stuff and be like, this is really fascinating to me. But, you know, to a lay audience, it's probably like, yeah, that's over my head. That's And it's like, feels like a different language. So uh, that's really the crux of talking about science in a compelling way that gets people to kind of buy into the importance of this kind of stuff. So what was the, the challenge for you in striking that balance of, I want to deliver this really cool information, but I also have to do it in a way where it is, uh, it's entertaining at the same time. Right. And I guess, you know, I, I like to think of myself as, as decent at doing the types of things I do. Um, I don't think of myself as a super genius by any stretch of the imagination. So in order to learn these things, I had to, to learn it, uh, you know, basically starting at the beginning. And, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not amazing at, at running a mass spectrometer, for example. But I know how the mass spectrometer works because someone was able to teach me uh, at the level that I could understand it. And I guess it's kind of a help that I don't understand things so well uh, because that's how I like to teach people about these, the tools that we use or the meteorites that we study and why we study them uh, is, is because, you know, it's important to, to be able to understand it uh, at a lot of different levels. Uh, and, and for somebody who's a non-expert in it, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to, to start how you started learning it. Um, and because nobody understands plasma physics, uh, you know, uh, you know, at any level until you start learning about it and, and you just kind of have to, to think about it, uh, that way, I guess. Ooh, what's plasma physics? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you knew <laughs> when you were writing, uh, when you were writing this book, what did you, when you were hitting speed bumps, what did those speed bumps look like? Good question. Speed bumps were probably on what topics to focus on. Uh, there's a couple, you know, parts of the appendix that uh, are more you know, kind of geology focused uh, and and kind of methods focused, uh, and and those are of course the easiest things to write ab- write about because that's what I do kind of in my everyday job as a as a cosmochemist. But of course, those are not things that people really care about uh, that are just picking up a book to learn about, you know, King Tut's dagger is a meteorite. You know, they don't really care about how you measure the isotopic composition of that. Um, So I guess to me, picking the topics that were of the most interest to non-experts was probably, you know, one of the, one of the biggest speed bumps. Um, And and that's why I was able to, to really lean on my, my kind of helpful readers uh, to, to kind of tell me which directions they thought were better. Um, So I guess maybe, maybe those are the kind of speed bumps uh, that I would say. Yeah. It's a lot like when you're, if you're, if there's a nature show or something, you have to focus on the, the charismatic megafauna. And it's like, what, what's cool about like, you know, elephants and tigers and all that stuff. And it's like, same thing with you. It's like, you needed to look at like King Tut's dagger and talk about, you know, earth shattering, uh, 
you know, meteorites that could obliterate the planet. Like, don't look up. That whole, you know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of thing. So it's like you got to like pick the things that are like the juiciest things, and uh, you yeah. know, focus on that. Even though uh, I'd like they're super cool, but you're probably like, oh man, I've seen this movie a hundred times. Do I really have to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, there's part of that, and that's why I don't focus on the death of the dinosaurs too much. I mean, there's a little bit in there about that, but you know, kind of everybody knows that, that happened, and there's books upon books that have researched just far better than I could uh, or did. You know, but but I think there's a lot of other things that hadn't been talked about that are equally important or at least, uh, you know, very important uh, to, to the, the dinosaurs being knocked out by by a meteorite. Yeah, I mean, I think I just think, uh, you know, it's it's just kind of fun to learn about those things. Now, at any point in the generation of a, of a book there, there comes this point in the middle, usually in the middle. And it's it's just like, man, this. The honeymoon's over. I'm too far away from the shore to like to swim back. The only way is a forward, but it just it's a slog. How were you getting through the slog of the middle of writing impact? I am not sure I hit that, to be totally honest. And I think it was because I just kind of took my time and was kind of doing scientific research in, at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So I was in no hurry to finish this. Uh, I would just kind of write a chapter and then send it off to a few people and see what they thought and then, you know, do some lab work and then come back. So there wasn't a point where I kind of got burnt out on it uh, mm-hmm. because I, I wasn't really trying to finish the book. I was just writing these chapters because I found them interesting. You know, I made a list of the interesting chat or the, the interesting things about uh, meteorites that I don't think had been talked enough about. I guess I never really hit that. And, and maybe that's just because I wasn't pressing to, to write on it. But I can, I, there were definitely parts in some chapters was I was like, oh man, I don't know how to, I don't know where to go with this. But it didn't seem like it was a whole book. It was just kind of uh, within maybe one or two stories about I wasn't sure where to take something. And, you know, for me, I just put it down for a week or two and then would come back to it. So I, I, I guess I was fortunate in that uh, to where I kind of had other things on my mind uh, that were associated with the topic, but not necessarily considered part of the book. Now, in this show, a lot, I like to talk about voice a lot. And you've talked about, you know, Bill Bryson and how influential he is. And he's definitely a very voicey writer. He's very distinctive. Uh, over the course of writing this book, you know, what did you learn about yourself as a writer and the voice that you were looking to convey once you really got going? <laughs> I don't know, actually. It's really funny, though. A lot of my friends that have, have read parts of the book, they're like, oh, it's really hard because I can just hear you saying these stupid things. <laughs> so <laughs> it makes me kind of realize what maybe how I talk and then, you know, read this in, in text and go, oh, man, that's embarrassing or you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess as, as far as finding the voice, it's to me, it was just kind of looking at what people want to learn about. It may not. And I think that's why I ended up putting a lot of uh, footnotes in the book. And, and maybe sometimes people find these distracting and sometimes they find them helpful because you're you're kind of going on with a certain story. But that footnote to me is really interesting. Uh, and if I were you know speaking to you, I would probably tell you about that footnote, but it may not help with the story uh, from a text standpoint. Um, so that's why I ended up putting a lot of footnotes in. And maybe that's as is part of my voice is just kind of how you know, uh, little things pop in here or there that I find interesting, but don't necessarily belong as, as part of the main story. Now you said you did a lot of the, the, the illustrations in this book too. Um, uh, is drawing something that you 
just like to do to unplug or as thing to do as a, a divert some some sorting uh, some sort of thing that just kind of distracts you from the thing at hand to kind of re-stimulate your brain or just something you do for fun <laughs> Uh, for those that have seen the illustrations in the book, uh, you can tell that I'm not a good artist, <laughs> but, uh, I do enjoy it. Uh, I'm really terrible if I just pick up a pen and, or a pencil and start drawing, I'm just awful at it. But, uh, with the beauty of, you know, illustrator or, you know, computers, which you can control Z and undo something, uh, or move lines around after they've been put down, I can get to, to the point where something's kind of recognizable, and, and I, I definitely enjoy that. And I think what, what it comes from is that I like kind of telling stories, you know, with the pictures. And, you know, while I can't do it just with my hand and a pencil and paper, uh, you know, if I take the time, I can do it with, with some sort of digital illustration. Uh, so, you know, to, to kind of get back, uh, I'm terrible at art, but I really enjoy it. Now, a lot of writers, too, have, you know, idiosyncrasies about how they go about, you know, the, the process, uh, how they... Uh, sort of uh, stoke the fires so they can get into get into a nice flow, a nice practice to get. So I wonder for you, do you have any, you know, any practice things you put in place to get you into the right sort of mindset when you were, uh, you know, writing this book and presumably your next ones? I didn't ever develop a real rhythm, um, probably because I would just do it chapter by chapter and then, you know, like I said, put it down for a while, but. Probably just when I would get excited about something, you know, I'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning and think, oh, I should talk about that. That's great. You know, and of course, that next day I would spend the whole time sitting there writing about it or researching about that one topic. But it would just kind of come in, in fits and starts like that, I think. Uh, so it wasn't something that I could, you know, if I would never schedule, okay, I'm writing all day Wednesday. Um, that's just not how my brain works. And it, I, I don't think I would have been productive at all had I set it up that way. Uh, I think it just kind of had to come somewhat organically like, oh, I thought of an idea. This is what I should talk about. And then I just talk about it until I have everything on paper that I want to talk about. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of how it happened. But I, I never really thought about how I was doing the writing. I was just kind of doing it. Yeah, I I know that uh, Gay Talese, who is uh, you know, probably in his 90s now, but he's one of like a pioneering literary journalist, if you will, the old, old, old guard journalist and one of his weird things he would do he would have these styrofoam wall panels on his wall and he would print out a page of his whatever draft he was working on he would pin it to the wall pin it to those styrofoam things and he would walk across his office and with binoculars read the pages that he tacked up to the wall, I don't know, to get some degree of distance between himself and the work and to get a different visual perspective. I don't know if that would work. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but that is just one of those weird, quirky <laughs> things that some writers do. <laughs> I like it, though. I like it. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> one of those things, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that takes me back to, uh, you know, Die Hard when that guy's talking about how you, you know, get over jet lag, you know, take off your shoes and socks and just start grinding your feet into the carpet. Uh, <laughs> like, right. It's one of these things that, uh, yeah, I'll try it. Why not? Maybe it'll help. <laughs> Now, as uh, I just got a couple more things for you, Greg. Um, if if you could snap your fingers and for a technology that'll answer the most burning questions that you have about media rights in your research, what would that be? Whew. You know, I would say probably the thing that interests me the most, and and the people I work with will probably kill me because this is not at all what I do. Uh, <laughs> is is probably. 
the organics uh, in meteorites and how actually they contributed to the ignition of life. And I talk about, you know, the ingredients of life, uh, you know, being brought with, you know, from meteorites. Um, but that step going from, okay, we have all the ingredients to, you know, here we are, here's a birthday cake. You know, that to me is just absolutely fascinating. You know, what physical process happened? Uh, you know, what was it that actually kind of made that leap from raw ingredients to, you know, something swimming around in the ancient ocean? And, and you know, I don't really know how that machine would be created. I mean, there's a lot of smart people that have been working on this for a long, long time. Um, and they've made some progress, but you know, that's just one of those things that I think is absolutely fascinating. And, uh, at this point we don't know. Uh, so I think that's where I'd go with that. Mm. All right. And I, I forgot to prime Allison to ask you, uh, uh about this. This is a, so if it catches you a little flat footed, no worries. It's a very low pressure question. Uh, but I like to end these conversations by asking the guests for a recommendation of sorts for the listeners. And that can be anything from a book to a pair of socks to a brand of tea you're wild about. Um, so I'd extend that to you, Greg. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind that uh, that you would recommend to the listeners, something that's uh, making you really happy? And you'd be like, you know what? I want I want to share share some of this happiness. I don't know. I This is really just broad, but find something you like doing and do it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, whether that's drinking good tea or wearing nice socks, uh, you know, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, uh, you know, I don't know. I just feel like uh, we, we lack a lot of joy and we get wrapped up in, you know, too many small things, uh, you know, with work or with, with families or whatever. But, you know, there are a lot of things that give people joy. You know, I like to go out and, you know, shoot baskets or, or you know, hit a tennis ball around or play golf or something. So I don't know. I would just say, go, go do those things, uh, get outside and enjoy nature. Yeah. Like do the things that you did when you were like 11 years old and you just, and you just did it because you were, wanted to play and you're like, ah, I just feel like kind of fucking around and having fun. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. right? I, I mean, we it, don't do that anymore. It brings joy to your life. And, you know, presumably a lot of people just don't get the chance to do these and, you know, take the time to go for a hike and, you know, go run around, go, you know, skinny dipping in a lake or something. Who cares? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's fun for you and it doesn't harm anybody. So <laughs> fantastic. Well, well, Greg, where can uh, people, uh, you know, find you uh, online and get more familiar with your work? Uh, I'll be totally honest. I'm not great with the internet, uh, or at least, uh, being present <laughs> on social media. I am on Twitter, kind of, uh, at Greg Brennica. Um, and then of course, you know, normal email stuff, uh, is, is always, always there if, if you guys have questions. Um, but yeah, I don't have, I don't have Instagram or Facebook or, um, I don't know, uh, what was, what was, uh, MySpace? I don't, I don't think that exists. Anymore. Oh yeah. <laughs> nice. That'd be awesome if you had a MySpace page. I know, but, but I guess Twitter's <laughs> probably the, uh, the closest thing I have to social media. So, uh, you know, that's probably the best way to go. Fantastic. Well, Greg, the book was a ton of fun. I had a ton of fun reading it. It was wonderful getting to talk to you and uh, expand upon uh, some of the themes and the cool, cool nuggets in this book. So uh, thanks so much for the work and thanks for coming on the show. Great. Really appreciate it, Brandon. It was fun. Alas, we've come to the end. Thanks to Greg for entertaining some of my more banal questions on the matter. Here, you, know, you kind of get a sense of how I'd interview someone for a feature or a profile. Got to ask stupid questions sometimes. And one stupid question I forgot to ask him was about the orbits of the planets around the sun. Like, 
are all the planets on the same plane in our varying elliptical orbits? Or are we orbiting the sun, say, I don't know, in the y-axis, like over the top and bottom, and say maybe Jupiter is zipping, zipping along the x-axis, you know, it, uh, going our east and west or whatever. You kind of get the idea. Like, are we more like electrons around a nucleus, or are we all in line? I don't know. Damn it. I think I'm going to have to email Greg. Maybe. Subscribe to the show if you don't already. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, so that way you don't even have to think about it. We have so much decision fatigue. Why make this a decision? Let this thing just auto-download to your favorite podcast app every Friday about 3 a.m. Uh, 3 a.m. Pacific? I think that's when I schedule it for. You'd think I'd know by now. We're everywhere, CNFers. And if you have a moment, leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. Okay, there's interviewing and then there's interviewing for story. I listened to a great episode of How Sound with Rob Rosenthal as he interviewed Alex Spiegel, uh, 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 this American Life producer, about a story she made for This American Life, Love is a Battleground, from a few years ago. I'll include it in the next month's newsletter. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. Alex says during that interview, quote, you have to gather an interview that gets you to every point in the narrative and gets them, as them as the subject, to reflect on every moment in the narrative and then deliver insight they glean from their experience. So particularly Iris, uh, Ira Glassian way of doing these radio stories this is how you essentially write nonfiction that reads like novels. You got to burrow into someone's head to get this kind of information out. I, I love asking people, you know, what do you make of that? You know, that way it gets them really thinking about it. And then you can, when they're saying they think about it, you can really internalize that in the prose part, paraphrasing things. And, and it does read a bit more fluid, like your favorite fiction. I know many of you write memoir or want to, and I can see the blunt blood drain out of your out of people's faces when I tell them you got to interview people to write a better memoir asking questions of family members especially can feel kind of judgy like why did you do that or but uh good luck if you have a boomer father you're trying to mine for information they're like those pistachios that aren't even open and you're like fuck I want that pistachio and my fingers are all swollen from opening these other little fuckers and then this guy has the audacity to not even be open. Like, I paid for that nut. Interviewing family is kind of like that. I know you got it in you, so stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.